You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. My name's Tom, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Hope Church. So good to welcome in new members. Um, It's so uh, wonderful to see God growing this family, and um, we're rapidly outgrowing this place. And we're going, as you will already know, I'm sure, we've purchased a new building in the centre of town and uh, we're going, going to be renovating it over this coming year. Uh, we have an offering next week. We're going to be giving big, giving joyfully into um, our, our renovation um, fund, as it were. If you're regularly amongst us, if this is your church family, um, please prayerfully consider how you can uh, give next week. It's going to be an exciting morning as we celebrate giving loads of money away. Hallelujah. Okay. Um, this morning we're continuing... In our series in 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 6 today, and uh, over the last few weeks we've seen how uh, the man called Paul, who um, others might know as St. Paul or the Apostle Paul, um, had written to this church in Corinth that he had founded about uh, 20 years after Jesus had walked uh, the earth. And uh, this church was uh, very dear to Paul's heart, but they had got into some trouble, and they had really, uh, there was a lot of mess in this church. And over the last few weeks, we've seen how the Apostle Paul, having heard about these issues when he was in another church in Turkey, he wrote to the church in Corinth in Greece and and laid some things out with them. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at him addressing the division in the church in Corinth. And today, we're seeing him moving on to addressing the issue of sex and sexual immorality. Um, You might recall from week one, if you've been with us throughout this series, that Corinth was a sex-mad city. It was a, a, a place that was known for um, sexual indulgence. It was a place that if you talked about uh, you, the fact you were from Corinth, you'd get a knowing look from your fellow uh, Grecians. They, they had a phrase that if you were, playing the, you were playing the Corinthian, it was that you basically slept around a lot, that you were sexually promiscuous. Um, as we think about Vegas, if someone says they're going to Vegas, we can kind of picture they're going there to gamble. People who, when they said they were going to Corinth, people kind of knew what they were going for. And they had a phrase that was that, you know, money doesn't stretch very far in Corinth. Not every man can afford to go to Corinth, because implying that basically they would go there and sleep with the, uh, the city's prostitutes. Because there was a temple to the, to the goddess of sexual love, Aphrodite, and uh, they had thousands of, uh, or hundreds, I should say, um, priestesses in that temple who in the evenings would go and sell there themselves in, in the city. And so it was a city that was rife with kind of with vice, really. There was a temple to Apollo as well. And in that uh, temple, uh, young boys were sold into prostitution. It was really shocking, to be honest. It was a shockingly uh, sexualized culture. But unless you've been hiding under a rock and you only come out on Sunday mornings, you will have noticed that our culture is equally obsessed with sex. Our culture is equally... Uh, obsessed with sexual fulfillment, maybe in a more subtle way, maybe in not such an obvious way as having huge temples erected in our cities uh, to the goddess of sexual love. But sex has become quite a god in our culture. And uh, they may not be as obvious as I say, but in almost every TV series that you uh, might binge watch on Netflix or uh, post 9pm on on terrestrial TV, there's, there's sex scenes. There's sex scenes for supposedly, supposedly for our entertainment. Um, there's an ex- implicit expectation given to young people that if they haven't slept with someone by the time they're, say, 18, 19, that there's something wrong with them. 
just look at the suspicion um, that's, uh, that's given towards celebrities in our culture who are celibate, who have never married and have never had you know, romantic relationships. People think, what's wrong with them? What, what, you know, they must be a bit weird. That's the kind of situation that we find ourselves in in our culture. It's somehow weird if we're not giving our all to be uh, sexually fulfilled in some way. Just a few statistics uh, for you. Um, 11% of people in our nation think that sex before marriage is wrong. And uh, we've heard multiple stats about male consumption of pornography in recent years when we've taught into this uh, subject. But it's now believed that one in three women regularly watch pornography. Uh, an NHS survey from five years ago, uh, which, which uh, had thousands of participants, reported that the average number of male sexual partners a woman has over her lifetime is now 7.7. For men, this has risen to 11.7. In that same survey, only 63% of men and only 70% of women felt that it was wrong to have a one-night stand when in an exclusive relationship. So that means that 30% of of women think it's okay to have a one-night stand when in an exclusive relationship, and 37% of men. 83% of people between 30 and 80 had had sex with their current partner before they were married. Uh, Google has uh, produced some statistics on this as well. The term sexless marriage has been Googled far more times than the term loveless marriage or unhappy marriage. And that is just a few statistics about sex and relationships. You can, you can easily uh, Google these and be careful with what you Google, but you can, uh, <laughs> you can Google these things and find out statistics as you go. We haven't got the time to delve into the alarming and tragic statistics concerning uh, sexually transmitted disease and uh, unwanted pregnancies um, that in that same NHS survey are really tragic. And uh, last week I was at a conference, or a couple of weeks ago, at a conference for children's workers and a statistic was shared there that it is now um, you're more likely to have a smartphone in your home at the age of 16 than you are to have a dad in your home. So I share these statistics not to point the finger at our culture. I hope that if you were here last week, you'd be really clear that Christians cannot in any way be uh, feeling superior to the world around. Christians should never feel superior. We are simply forgiven people. We're simply people who have seen we really need uh, the forgiveness of Jesus. We really need uh, Jesus to help us. But I share these that might sober us and kind of get our attention to the fact that when it comes to sex, we're really not much different to um, the, the culture at Corinth. We're not much different. We might be bemoan in the recent years, bemoan the uh, redefini- redefinition of marriage. Some people might say, oh, it's a shame that that's happened. But in reality, the redefinition of marriage occurred long ago where people left behind until death do us part, where people say, well, it's not working, then chuck it. Or people said, basically, when it comes to uh, sexual ethics, if it's not hurting anyone, then fill your boots. That's kind of been the ethic of our culture for many, many years, not just the last five or ten years. There's a massive glorification of sex in our culture, just as there was in Corinth, and it has huge consequences for our nation, as I think I've uh, gone some way to sharing but it can also lead to all kind of mess in the church. We are not exempt from that. There will be many people uh, who are dealing with um, issues like this. When Paul is writing the verses we're going to read right now, he could easily be writing to 1st century Corinth or 21st century Britain. These are verses that are relevant for us today. So let's uh, read 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 18 
through to 20. Paul writes this, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I'm going to pray, because more than ever, I need God to help me to preach this, because I know that this is so weighty for many here, and I want to be sensitive in that. So would you join me in praying? Father, as we dive into your word this morning, will you help me to be sensitive to your spirit and his leading? Help me to have compassion in my heart, and I pray that for each one of us, you will help us to put you first in this area. Help us to put your ways first in these areas. Help us, Lord God, to respond this morning in the ways that you'd have us respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the next few weeks, we're going to be touching on the subjects of sex and marriage and singleness and identity For reasons that I hope I've made clear, we cannot be silent on these matters. For reasons that I think these statistics that I've shared will make clear, we have to teach regularly into these matters here. I guess at least once a year, because many of us will be dealing with these things, even if not just for ourselves, but for people that we know and love. Sadly, over the years, um, churches have tended to shy away from touching on the subject of sex and relationships, basically teaching that sex is is somehow filthy and dirty, so just save it for the one that you're going to get married to. Save it for the one that you're going to spend the rest of your life with. That's kind of been the kind of uh, the, the, the teaching, and we know that actually the Bible paints a really beautiful picture of sex. There's a whole book in the Bible called Song of Songs, or sometimes it's called Song of Solomon, which is a whole book that praises really beautiful sex and it, within the context of marriage, and it's wonderful. So, we know that, that God actually has a really clear view in mind when it comes to sex and it being a wonderful thing. But we've come uh, to see here in the book of 1 Corinthians that the, the church in Corinth had got some things wildly wrong in this area. We know from chapter 5 that there was a man who was sleeping with his stepmother. That's pretty twisted, isn't it? I think we can all agree, whatever your viewpoint on, uh, on sex and sexual immorality, I think we can all agree that a guy sleeping with his stepmother is not right. It's not right. And the people in the church in Corinth hadn't challenged him about it. And we see in chapter 5, which we're not going to delve into in great depth today, that Paul's saying, you've got to challenge this guy. You've got, well, as much as he said in the previous chapter, that we're not to judge those in the world. We're not to have any sense of superiority about us. Within the church, we've got to lovingly say to people when they're uh, stepping into all kinds of mess in this way, we've got to lovingly say, hey, God's got much better for you. Leave this behind. Leave this aside. And no one had challenged this guy. And Paul's saying, well, if you challenge him and he listens, great. If he doesn't, you've got to ask him to leave the church. You've got to ask him to move on because this is actually going to mar them as a church. We also know that um, people in the church were using prostitutes. That's alluded to in chapter 6. And Paul's saying, you've got to kick this into touch. You've got to flee from this stuff. But before I come on to why we ought to flee from sexual immorality... I need to define it in a way that I believe the Bible would define it. There's no kind of dictionary kind of section in here where it says sexual immorality, definition, you know, uh, 
synonyms and all that kind of stuff. That's not in there. But when we, we gather together uh, different texts in the Old and the New Testament, we see that sexual immorality is pretty clear as to what it is in terms of God's sight. So this is how I'm defining it for the purpose of this morning and this morning's message. Sexual activity, sexual immorality is sexual activity outside of a God-approved marriage covenant between one man and one woman. So, why flee sexual immorality? Um, I'm going to give three reasons from this passage on why we must flee, and I'm going to talk about how we can flee. So firstly, why flee? Firstly, it will deceive you. In verse 9, Paul says to them, do not be deceived. And we're going to read on um, for what he says in there, but he says, do not be deceived when it comes to these matters. We can believe the lie that says, well, it's okay, it'll just be some fun. As long as we use protection and there's no long-term consequences, it's going to be okay. It's just sex, it's all good. Or, well, it's not full sex, you know, God's against the full sex thing in marriage. He's saying that's, that's safe for marriage, but anything else is okay. I was at a, a youth conference a few years ago and there was a Q&A and someone texted in the question, does oral sex count as sex? And the guy, who was very wise, just said, the clue's in the name, the clue's in the name. We can believe the lie, it's just porn. It's better than doing the real thing. It's better than giving ourselves to the real thing. We can be so easily deceived in this area. But the reality is, with every compromise made against God's plan, our consciences and our souls get affected. Things can get rapidly darker and darker. And some of you know exactly what I mean when I say that. For some of you, it might have been starting to dabble in something and you think, well, it's not really porn. You know, it can barely classify as that. But more and more, you found it's got darker and darker, and you found yourself trapped in it. It's deceptive. And as much as we can be deceived by our enemy, the devil, we can also deceive ourselves. We tell ourselves, I'm not as bad as that guy or that girl. We think, well, at least I'm not doing that. Um, you know, it could be a lot, lot worse. And we can kind of you know, think, well, it's justifiable what I'm doing because it's not as bad as that person. And we, can, we begin to make compromises. Hey, it could be a lot worse. The biggest lie I believe that we buy is this. That all sin is sin. And my sin is sexual immorality, but their sin is gossip. It's kind of the same. You know, That's just what they're dealing with and struggling with. And that's what I'm dealing with and struggling with. It's all the same before God. Well, there's some truth in that. But there's also a major lie. There's some truth in the, the statement that all sin is sin. But there's also a major lie there as well. The truth is that... Our sin, our falling short of God's ways, it does equally qualify all of us for being in need of a saviour. We each one of us need to be forgiven and saved and set free. And in a sense, any sin means that we need to be saved. And all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's what the book of Romans says in the Bible. So in that sense, yes, all sin is sin. It all needs to be forgiven and dealt with by Jesus who died in our place. On the cross. But Paul is making it very clear here that actually sexual sin is different. He differentiates between sexual immorality and other sins. There's more damage that comes with sexual sin than with many other sins. The sex is different, and the world agrees with that. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I think you agree with that. I think you would, uh, you would agree that the world pours much more shame on someone who's committed a sexual assault than on someone who's punched someone in a bar. Because it's different, isn't it? It's different. There is something special about the sexual organs that God has given us 
There's something, uh, there's something very precious about sex. There's something more than physical about it. So let's reread what Paul says. We're going to read um, verses 15 to 19. He says this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. for You were bought with a price. Now glorify God with your body. Forget for a minute here that he's talking about prostitution, because I'm imagining that there might only be a few here that have dabbled in that world. And so you might think, well, he's talking about prostitution, okay? So, I, you know, I don't need to, it's not about me. No, he's, he's talking here about sexual immorality generally, but he's using the example of prostitution because that's what people were getting into uh, in Corinth. So forget for a moment that he's talking about prostitution, but what do you think he's saying in this text when he says that to have sex with a prostitute is to become one body with her? Is this merely just a physical act? Or is he saying that something more significant is going on here? I believe he's saying this. Sex goes beyond the physical and it touches the soul. Sex brings the two bodies and souls into a kind of oneness not otherwise known. That is a wonderful thing. That's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful and mysterious thing. But it can also be very damaging if it's not handled in the way that God wants it to be handled. That's why it's so painful for you if you've given yourself over to um, many sexual partners. That's why it's so painful for you if you've been abused in some way. Because sex is more than just a physical act. You can be physically harmed in a way that does not affect your soul. But you can't give yourself away sexually and not be affected deep within. On a spiritual level. Sexual immorality deceives us. It says, it's just sex. Well, it's never just sex. Something far deeper is going on than the physical. Sexual immorality deceives us. Sex isn't just sex. It's two human beings that have souls. And when they have sex, their souls are somehow connected in a way that we can't really understand, not just their bodies. And it can lead to damage down the line. It can lead to us feeling a sense of emptiness down the line. This is a, sex is a sacred thing. And that's why great damage is done when sex is inappropriate, because it damages, it wounds, it shames, and it scars the soul. The invisible immaterial portion of who we are is marred and stained and sometimes altogether broken because of sexual sin. It's not just two bodies coming together. We don't buy that we're just highly evolved mammals. If you, if you consider that we are just highly evolved mammals, then to be honest, if you've got an appetite, then satisfy it. If you're hungry, have food. If you're thirsty, have a drink. If you want sex, go and find a sexual partner. That, that's the reality but we don't buy the lie that we're just highly evolved mammals. We believe we're made in God's image. And God has made sex as a precious gift. It's not some urge to satisfy with anyone and everyone. And we can find ourselves in all kinds of mess when we give ourselves to sexual activity outside of God's plan. And Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Secondly, it will cost you everything if you don't flee. If you knew that something was coming towards you, that if you don't get out of the way of it, it's going to take your life, you would drop everything you had and just leg it. 
Just like tragically last week in the thousand or so people who were swept up by the tsunami in Indonesia. They saw something coming and I've got to get out of the way of it. I've got to do all I can to get out of its path. This is the imagery here. Forget about your stuff for a moment and just run. Leg it as far as you can away from sexual immorality. Because more important than your stuff or your health or even your life is your standing before God. That's the most important thing. Are you in, are you, do you know God? More important than anything else. Have you been forgiven by him? Have you come into his family? Have you been adopted by him? And we're told in this passage, in verses 9 to 11, let's read it, that the sexually immoral, and not just the sexually immoral, others as well, will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is what it says in verse 9. Do you, know, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul's talking to this church in Corinth and saying, you, you guys, this is, this is who you were. In fact, this was who Paul was. He was a reviler. This list that he's listed here, he was one of those. He had people killed. He had people killed because of their faith in Jesus. Such were some of us. Such were some of us here. Many of us here. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Those who have been forgiven, been cleaned up, been justified are to inherit a kingdom. We're in some ways entering into it now. We're already part of God's kingdom. But one day we'll inherit it in its fullness. And Paul's saying here is if you are running headlong after all these other things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. When you meet Jesus, something changes. When you meet Jesus, you see, Jesus, you are so much better than anything else I could run headlong after. You're so much better. And as we shared last week when we baptised the five people that we baptize, it doesn't mean we suddenly become perfect, but we make our whole lives about Jesus being king. And we're going to make mistakes, but we say, Jesus, your way is so much better than anything else the world has to offer me. And I'm going to run for you. I'm going to live for you. I want to leave this stuff behind. He forgives us. He cleans us up. If you carry on in every way that you walked in before you came to know Christ, then I don't think you've come to know Christ. The inevitable, the inevitable thing of someone who's come to know Christ is that they will grow to become more like him. It's something that takes a whole lifetime, actually. And only when, we, when we're with him will we, will we be just like him. Only when we are with him will we be like him. But if nothing changes when you come to know Jesus, then you probably haven't come to know Jesus at all. Because he brings change. He brings change. And Paul's saying, if you're running headlong after the same stuff that you ran headlong after before you came to know Christ, then you, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying, run, flee, run hard and fast. Thirdly, it will enslave you. In verse 12, Paul's kind of interacting with the Corinthians. We're not quite sure whether it was a saying that he had or whether it's a saying that they had, but they say, all things are lawful for me. But Paul says, but not all things are helpful. And they say, all things are lawful for me, but, and Paul says, I will not be 
enslaved by anything. I will not be dominated by anything. I will not allow these things to enslave me. The big celebration of our culture is that we are now sexually liberated. That's kind of been the, the narrative of the last 40, 50, 60 years. We were once slaves to kind of, you know, being sort of told we couldn't do this and couldn't do that, and now we're liberated. But I think the stats that I've shown show that we really haven't been liberated. We actually end up in slavery. We actually end up with all kinds of uh, issues in the family and in society and with sexual assault and all kinds of awful stuff because we've not really been liberated. We've been enslaved to some stuff as a culture. I know many friends of mine who I love dearly who are enslaved in this way, sleeping around, desperate to find validation in sexual partners, desperate to find validation. I need someone to love me. As that song, that great song by Queen, can anyone find me somebody to love? That's kind of, I know many people are in that situation. I need someone to love me. And, and putting them there, you know, themselves out there to try and find validation in sexual partners. Friends of mine not able to commit, not really over their first time, not really uh, still attached in some way, not really able to get over it. Or needing to get that buzz again from pornography. Listen, if you give yourself over to sexual immorality, it will end up wreaking havoc in your life. It may seem harmless at first. It may seem pleasurable at first. Sin, is, it wouldn't be attractive if it wasn't pleasurable, right? It wouldn't be attractive if it wasn't pleasurable. But it will end up demanding more and more, and it will give you less and less. I've seen marriages and families blown apart as people have discarded God's ways. And it probably started in a very subtle way. It started in a very subtle way of a little bit of flirtation here, a little look over the desk here. A little dabble online here. But the reality is it deceives and it enslaves. Don't think it's just sex. It's much more than that. And the consequences can affect us for years. People who have overindulged in their younger years can find it hard when it comes to settling down. Because they think, well, I've got all these memories playing in my mind like a, like a, like a video in my mind of previous partners. I know... Friends of mine who, who don't want to settle down and get married because they've become so enamored with the, uh, the images of su- supposed perfection that they see on a screen. And they think, well, no one else, I can't, don't find anyone else attractive. Everyone else is just boring. It will enslave you. I've preached a lot of bad news this morning, but there's good news as well. In all of this, you need to know this. There's two opposing forces in this world. Pretty much every movie that we watch has this truth. Isn't that interesting? Every movie that we have in this world is about good versus evil. All these action movies and so on is about good versus evil. Well, that's because there's a reality at the heart of the universe that there is an enemy, the devil, who is opposed to the ways of Jesus. He's not equally powerful. It's not some sort of yin-yang thing. Jesus is far, far greater but he says of the, the devil that he's the father of lies. He, he calls him the father of lies, the father of all lies. And he says in John chapter 10 that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The devil's plan is to bring misery and slavery and destruction. That's his plan. But Jesus' plan, he says, I have come that they may have life and life to the full. Jesus has come into the world that you and I can have life to the full, whether single or married. And it's possible to know life to the full, whether single or married. 
whether having sex or no sex, you, you can have life to the full if you know Jesus. And it's not just some life to the full when we die and go to be with him one day. No, it's life to the full now. And he, he, he says, I've come to bring freedom. This is what he says in Isaiah. Isaiah 61 is a prophecy that was made many, many years before Jesus came to earth. But Jesus then stands up at a festival in the Gospels and says, this is about me. This is all about me. This is what he says in Isaiah 61. He says this, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. If you want the good news today, it's this. You can flee to Jesus. Flee from sexual immorality and flee to Jesus. Run to Jesus. He has good news for the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom for the captives. Do you feel in some way captive to this stuff? He has freedom for you. He has release from darkness for the prisoners. He's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. And some of, in the first service as I was preaching this, I felt God just come to me like with a, a, a I don't know, a sledgehammer and say, this is, you need to, to come and stay on this for a moment. That There's some here who are mourning. You are mourning in this area. You are mourning in this area. You're thinking, oh, all that I've done, all that has happened to me, I'm so grieved by it. God wants to deal with hearts this morning. Because he says this, he's come to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. To bestow on you a crown of beauty. And you might think, all that I've given myself to means that I've just got a crown of ashes. I look, I look to God completely filthy. He wants to give to you a crown of beauty. He wants to give you the oil of joy instead of mourning. The oil of joy. He wants to give you the oil of joy. He wants you to be joyful. He wants you to be joyful. And a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And I, I was reading these verses on Tuesday, um, early in my shed, just reading Isaiah 61. And this spirit of despair thing jumped out. Some, he, some people here, you have a spirit of despair. You think, I'm never going to get free from this. You think, I've, all I've given myself to, I'm never going to get free. Listen, I've seen Jesus again and again and again free people who think, I can't get free. I've seen him do it. I've seen him do it. He's done it in my own life. You didn't think, I can't get free. He can do it. He can take off your spirit of despair and give you a garment of praise. That you would be called an oak of righteousness. A planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Jesus has come to announce freedom from these things. Release for the prisoners and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. I'm here to tell you that you can be free. You can be completely cleaned up. You can be healed of all the damage that you've experienced, either through what you've done or what's been done to you. Jesus is the expert in this. We heard in the first service, someone shared, Jesus wrote the book on salvation. He's the author of our salvation. He's the expert in this. If you want to go to anyone, go to Jesus. Run to Jesus. He's the expert at freeing people. He's the expert at setting people free. He's can, he can forgive you and clean you up. He he not only has the power to set you free and forgive you, he's got provision for you going forward. He's got provision for you. He's, it says in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's given us everything we need to live a godly life. That doesn't mean we won't ever make mistakes, but he's given us everything we need. He's given us his word. You know, there's, if you go on Amazon, you can buy over 200,000 books on sex. That's quite a lot, isn't it? 
You know, in his word, there is more wisdom in here than all of those 200,000 books compiled together. There's more wisdom for you in here. And he will teach us how to live out our singleness or how to live out our marriage or how to be satisfied in him to find that he has pleasures evermore in his presence. He has given us his word. He's given us his spirit, the same Holy Spirit that dwelled within Jesus. Jesus was led out into the desert and he was tempted by the devil. And by the power of the spirit, he resisted. By the power of the spirit, he said, no, I'm not going to go. That same Holy Spirit is the one who lives in you if you know him. If you know Jesus, that same Holy Spirit lives in you. He's given you his people to give you good counsel. In this room, there is much wisdom. There is much wisdom and there's people that you can say, I'm, in, I'm stuck in this way. What, what, what do I need to do? How can I get out of this? And there's people who will point you to Jesus and pray with you. There's counsel here. As elders, we want to give wise counsel, but there's others in this church who will give you wise counsel. If your sexual sin is driven by loneliness, and that's not just for those who are single. There are people who are in marriages and sexual sin is driven by loneliness. Then God has given you a family here. He's given you a family here in which you don't have to be alone. It says in his word, it's not good for man to be alone. That doesn't mean that everyone has to get married, but it means we can't be alone if we really want to walk in God's ways, we can't do it on our own. We have to throw ourselves into family. We have to throw ourselves into community. He may give you a spouse someday. And if he does, make sure that you run to your spouse as well. When, it, when sexual temptation comes, run to your spouse. I had a good few nods of thanks from husbands in this regard after the first service. Husbands and wives, as far as it is possible, be intimate regularly together doesn't mean you have to have the energy for the the full thing but be intimate together be intimate together because the devil will do all he can in tempting you to get into bed before you're married and he'll do all he can to keep you out of bed together when you are married God made sex and he made it pleasurable he made it to be enjoyed in marriage but he didn't make it the ultimate thing the ultimate thing that he's given us is Jesus Christ. He's given us Jesus Christ. Jesus gave himself for us. He gave himself for us. And in chapter 5, Paul's talking to the Corinthians saying, hey, don't, don't live in slavery like you used to. He says, our Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. What does that mean? You might think, what the heck does Passover mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. They were in, their, in, e- in Egypt and oppressed for many, many years. And God raised up Moses and said, you are going to lead my people out of here. And Moses went to Pharaoh and he said, you've got to let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no, because slaves are pretty handy. And so God caused plagues, curses to come upon the people of Egypt And with each one, it felt like the Pharaoh's resolve was going to to give way, but he wouldn't give way. And then one final plague came, which was that God sent the angel of death to take the lives of the, the eldest sons throughout the whole of the land of Egypt. And God's people 
in order that the angel of death would pass over their house, they took a lamb and they slaughtered the lamb and they painted the blood over their doorpost. They painted the blood over their doorpost so that the angel of death wouldn't come and affect their household. And Paul is saying in chapter 5, Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb for us. You know, God's people didn't stick around then after they had uh, been set free. They didn't stick around in the land of Egypt. They got well out of there. No longer slaves. They got out of there. And Paul's saying, don't go back to the slavery that you were once living in. Jesus Christ has been given for us. We're going to celebrate the Passover lamb, Jesus, that was given for us. We don't have to make sacrifices anymore because Jesus, once and for all, was sacrificed for us. He was the one whose sacrifice meant for us complete freedom from slavery. That we don't have to go back there. We don't have to go to the ways in which we once lived. And I want us just to focus on Jesus. I've preached a lot of bad news this morning. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, that's me. Maybe you're looking at yourself. I want you to look to Jesus right now as we sing in a moment. I want you to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He is so, so good. He is so, so good. You might think, yeah, I think I know that Jesus is good. You don't know the half of it. You really don't know the half of it. Jesus is so good. And he can free you from the stuff that you've been uh, taken captive by. He can free you. He's got things for you that you just so much better than anything else you might give yourself to. He's got great things for you. I want to stand. I want to pray. Jesus is able. Don't look to yourself and think, how am I going to get myself out of this? Look to Jesus. He's able. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we look to you. Lord, we've looked at some of the ways in which us ourselves have given ourselves to things that are just not your ways as a culture given ourselves to things that are not your ways Lord Jesus we look to you and say Jesus you are king you're the one who was sacrificed in our place and you rose again and you're king of our lives and we want to live out your ways Lord we want to live for you we want to flee from sexual immorality. We want to flee and we want to run to Jesus. We want to run to you, Lord. And we thank you so much that you made it possible for us to get free. You died on the cross for us. You, you poured out your blood for us. Your body was broken for us. Lord Jesus, and that's what we remember now. We're going we're gonna to remember what you've done for us, Jesus. Help us to realize we're no longer our own. We're, we now belong to you. We belong to the best master possible. We belong to the perfect master. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You have won us. You have bought us at a great price. We love you and we worship you, King Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.